As Howard Zinn said, small acts when multiplied by millions of people can transform the world. When we take the time to really show up for ourselves and for others, we become awakened to the moments that add up to make us who we are. It's within these everyday moments that hold infinite potential to change lives. I'm Rebecca Corin, co-founder and CEO of Wambi, back as host for season two of Moments Move Us. Last season, you heard from healthcare executives who shared their stories about the moments that transformed them. This season, we're back for more, continuing to unlock the many lesser seen instances of connection by hearing from transformational leaders who share about those pivotal moments that helped them become who they are. So with that, let's get into our first episode of the season. There's leaders who run day-to-day and they run operations and it's essential, and especially in healthcare. Man, you gotta have people who got the lights on in the OR and people who make sure people are scheduled and they know what they're doing. And then you have to have people that are looking across the industry and looking across the horizon and saying, is our organization ready for this? Have we done the proper stewardship of the organizational resources and the people to make sure that we're prepared for this future? How a leader perceives their role informs their leadership style. And there's a world of difference between being a boss and being a steward of an organization. I'm Rebecca Corin, and this is Moments Move Us, a people-first podcast unlocking the power of meaningful moments by bringing you stories that inspire. Annette Walker, president of City of Hope, Orange County, doesn't take the responsibility of leading her organization lightly. Perhaps working in healthcare makes it easier to see that when you're a leader, stakes are high, livelihoods are on the line. For Annette, That meant putting her focus on building something that could create opportunity and contribute to a better future. In our conversation, Annette and I discussed the balance between vulnerability and strength, the power of resilience, and how by acknowledging the humanity in others, we acknowledge the humanity in ourselves. These are practices that allow leaders to make a lasting impact. Today, Annette is known as a visionary strategist, and her impact is being recognized by the healthcare community at large. Let's start there. I love having fearless female leaders on the show, and I'm just so happy that you're here to kick us off for our season two. So Annette, I saw that you have been named one of the top 100 people by Modern Healthcare Magazine, and that is so incredible. So congratulations for that. Thank you. And later I saw that you were also named one of the top 25 most influential women in healthcare in the United States. Can you share a little bit about how that made you feel getting that accolade after all of your hard work in this industry? Pretty amazing. And both awards meant a lot to me for different reasons. I was so honored to be designated as a female leader. If you'd seen the list of the other women that I was included with, it was a real honor to be called out or to be designated, hey, you're one of our most influential people and you're seemingly using your platform for good or your opportunity for good. But it was also incredibly special to be named one of the top 100 persons for an entirely different reason. It meant that there was no special qualifier or elimination from who could be considered. It meant everybody could be considered. And that's always how I felt when I looked and applied for a position, I never wanted a position because I was a woman. 
I wanted a position because I was the most qualified and the best person for the job. And that award was a bit of that kind of recognition that doesn't matter where you came from, doesn't matter who you are, doesn't matter what your gender is. You're in a different class of the best of the best. You've been known to talk a little bit about women in leadership and communication and how being a woman doesn't really influence you in how you communicate from a style perspective. Obviously, it is who you are, but can you share a little bit about what that means to you? So being a female leader or really just being a leader and how does being a woman influence it, if at all? Oh, I think it influences it a lot. And I have to say many of my experiences as a woman, particularly a mother, I think brought a lot to my leadership style. So let me give you a few examples of things that I think play in both worlds. The nurturing aspect of motherhood is something that's really valuable in the workplace. People want to feel cared for. For instance, when you're a sponsor, you're always trying to create situations to will the development and growth of another individual. Same thing that a mother would do about her children. I think the building of community, what we do when we plan family events and you try to create an atmosphere of community where people feel included, that's what great leaders also do. There are so many things that I could go through that I think Being a woman has been an asset to my leadership style. Sometimes women say, you know, I should have been more aggressive like a man or whatever. And every leader has their own style and they have their assets and their detractors. But I always encourage them, stop worrying about everybody else. Be the best you. If you're a woman, be the best woman you can be. Don't worry about being a man. Be the best woman you can be because it's a gift. Authenticity, I think, is something that all leaders really talk about, but I feel like what you're getting at is a deeper sort of sense of who am I as an individual? What is my style? You know, as a leader, how am I going to bring that to bear versus trying to emulate maybe some of my peers or the people that I've seen in roles previously? I 100% agree with that. If you want to worry about playing from your weaknesses, that's a strategy, but I think most successful people play from their strengths. So if you as an individual know what your strengths are and you can lean on those, it doesn't mean you don't have to attend to your weaknesses, but it's a different strategy to play from your strengths than to play from your weaknesses. And, you know, sometimes I feel like as women, maybe we have a bit of a harder time acknowledging like this is my strength and being very sort of open about that and acknowledging of it, because I think sometimes women feel that we need to downplay what we're really good at. I'm curious if that's ever something that you thought about. I think being boastful never gets you anywhere. <laughs> well, that's that's for sure. I agree with that. Nobody likes a nobody likes a bragger. That's very old fashioned. My mom probably would have said that to me, and I don't think that's changed. I think if you really want to be successful from wherever you are, it's delivering on what you're responsible for. You need to find a job first of all that speaks to your soul, that inspires you. And then you need to find a job that you can do. Like I admire doctors, but I'm not a doctor. Practicing medicine is not my strength. I did learn in my career through a series of revealing moments that one of my strengths was strategy and how to anticipate the future and position an organization for that. So the more I could put myself into position to use my strength, the more successful I became. Put your skills in a place that's going to use them. 
again, I'm going to go back to that. Being a strategist isn't really helpful in the emergency room. That wasn't the place for me to work. You have some responsibility or you have some obligation to yourself to find what that spot is. And there's there's no easy way to find it. People call me now, especially young people, and they think there's the perfect solution of the perfect job, the perfect place, the perfect future. There is no perfect future. The way you learn what you're good at is by doing something and feeling the energy or feeling the lack of energy from it, and then continuing to pursue the ones that give you energy, the ones that give you success and traction, instead of piling on through a stubborn streak or through somebody else's ambitions or through being stuck for the money, I don't think you'll ever truly be successful if you don't find the sweet spot. I love how you said to find something that really speaks to your soul. Can you share how you found this work and how it spoke to your soul? I know you just talked a little bit about being a strategist and how there there was a moment in time. Can you share some moments that were defining for you if there was a moment? where you're like, healthcare, this is where I've got to be. And I want to lead a hospital. From the moment I was very young, my parents, and as well as my educators who were Catholic nuns, always said, you have to find work that makes a difference in the world, work that makes a better place. God designed you to do something, and he designed you to do something that matters. So find it. I don't know when exactly I figured out it was healthcare, but I remember all through high school, I thought I was going to be a doctor and over time things changed, but I didn't veer from the industry. Even at one time, I thought I was going to be a musicologist where you treat people with music. (laughs) So it was nothing like I do right now, but ended up, you know, starting my clinical career as a clinical lab scientist and ended up running a clinical lab for like 15 years. And there was an event or series of events while I had that job that helped me find my path. And it was, you've talked to before about moments that don't leave you when you see somebody or they see you. And I, I think this moment was a combination of seeing somebody and then seeing myself too. It was a situation where I had been asked to lay off people. These people did not serve to be laid off. They were being laid off because of bad executive decisions. And I'm looking at this person who makes at the time, probably $10 an hour. He was a lab assistant and I couldn't get over how unjust this was, that this person should not be the person losing their job. And he made $10 an hour and was supporting his family. And I felt so bad about it. I kept telling him how sorry I was, I had to do this. And he was comforting me saying, don't worry, Miss Annette, I will be fine. I understand. But That was a moment where I'm sitting here saying, this is the guy that should be mad at me, not being that. And here I was seeing something that I thought was very unjust. And I, this switch in my head went off. And that was when I realized that I wanted to spend my life creating things and building things so that people like this person would not have to suffer from leaders not having their eye on the ball, not looking out because, you know, there's leaders who run day to day and they run operations and it's essential. And especially in healthcare, man, you got to have people who've got the lights on in the OR and people who make sure people are scheduled and they know what they're doing. 
And then you have to have people that are looking across the industry and looking across the horizon and saying, is our organization ready for this? Have we done the proper stewardship of the organizational resources and the people to make sure that we're prepared for this future, that we can weather that storm, that we can build businesses that create jobs, that give people like that person opportunities so they can raise their kids and pay their bills. There's so much about leadership responsibility that's important. But anyway, that those were the moments that really sit. And I think about them often. I think about that person often. And I think about when I do what I do today, my obligations of setting something for a future, setting something for the people to follow. When that strategy is created and then executed, there are individual people that are impacted at the end of the line, the decision-making line. And you didn't want to be delivering this type of message on a strategy that you didn't think really had the eye on the ball. But it sounds like that is what really kind of got you thinking, well, I could be the one to really preserve this type of amazing team member and create strategies and also really a culture where people's impact is known across an organization. I think that's really hard in healthcare to figure out like where is the impact coming from and where are those moments? And I know that at Wambi, we talk a lot about the unseen moments like at the bedside, behind the curtain and how many really just micro instances happen within an experience of for a patient, a family member, and also for a team member within the course of their shift. You know, how do we see people from a leadership perspective when there are so many people to be seen and so many moments that happen? I agree. And I've given a lot of thought to that. In my career, I worked for a Catholic organization where they used to call it a sacred encounter. And that you would have these moments with people that when you were done or they were done, everybody would feel more healed, more whole, more ready to live, die, face life. And something similar is that what Namistat means is I'm going to honor the place in which the entire universe dwells in you. I recognize that light in you and I accept it and I honor it. And I don't think it happens just in healthcare. Healthcare is unusually rich with moments, but most people think it's healthcare provides the moments because the patients. And that's true. When I get calls, I got one this week, I got an email. This person just got diagnosed with cancer. They really need help. Can you get us in? And then this morning I got an email that said, oh my gosh, I can't believe your team, I now have hope mm. and like made my day, <laughs> made, made my day, makes it all worth it. Absolutely. And, but then again, when I, I think about some of my team members, because a lot of people support the healthcare infrastructure who aren't taking care of patients, but we need to take care of each other. And we tend to focus recognition programs on the celebration and all that. But I have found that you create a lot more intimacy and a lot more I want to say feeling to people when you look out for them in their moments of pain more than their moments of joy. So for instance, if somebody loses a parent or a child, I had a somebody who worked for me once that had miscarried twins. And I remember I went down and spoke with him and I think he was shocked I did. And I have to say, it's not an easy thing to do, but it's maybe the most remembered thing that People in pain so much want someone to help lift it or acknowledge it that when we go by and act like nothing happened, that's way more painful. 
if you have the opportunity as a leader to open yourself up to acknowledge the pain, I think it's always appreciated, amazingly appreciated. That is so well said, Annette. I feel like one of the biggest strengths a leader can have is the vulnerability to be able to sit in the discomfort of pain, especially with another person. And what you're sharing is really powerful. You know, I had an experience actually during COVID where Wambi, part of our platform is sending recognition through the system and we, and they're called Wambis. And we started to see more and more Wambis being sent about acknowledging really tough moments. And it was coming up again and again and again. And we were seeing like today was really hard team. We had a lot of losses on the floor. Thank you for being there. And we saw it more and more so that by the end, like over two years, I would say, we started to change the way that we as a company talk about Wombies. We don't say their recognitions. We say their acknowledgements because it's an acknowledgement of a moment. It could be a positive, incredible moment. It could be a really tough moment where people really needed to be seen by others. We all have moments of vulnerability. We all need people at different times. We need each other. And so that I think was even more powerful than any of the other recognition that was coming in. I think we've been socialized a little bit to not get too personal. And I'm not sure that's a good strategy. I think that when we come to work, we're not leaving our personal life in the car, in my purse. Whatever I'm dealing with is in my head, it's in my heart. And so it's there with me in the room. And to acknowledge the whole person and what's going on with them is, it's to me, it's really important. And when you talk about what's going on in our society right now, where people are feeling isolated and alone, this is part of it. Communities used to be better at holding each other up. And we need to bring that back. And whatever part of the world you can affect, you need to extend that. And whether it's at home or at work. Getting personal is so interesting because I feel like early in my career, it was really frowned upon to bring a lot of personal information into the workplace, but it's almost impossible to have human connection without the personal because we aren't robots, just like you said. And I feel like from the patient perspective to a team member or a provider, it's so powerful when you learn as a patient, something a little bit different about the person taking care of you. There was an example of a patient who was with their family and the family was really there by the patient's bedside as they were passing away. And the the physician was like, you know, my mother is going through something right now in Pakistan and I'm not able to be there with her. And I think what you're doing with your mother is just so amazing. And that moment really fused them together. And I think allowed both the provider and the family member to have a bond and a partnership in that moment where they supported each other. And I know it's almost like taboo to think about like patients and families simultaneously having this relationship of support with a caregiver, but that's how we build relationships. And I think that is where healing happens even more so. It also makes you feel safe when you talk about what inspires people, loyalty to a group. It's feeling part of the group, feeling safe in the group, being able to be vulnerable in the group and feeling protected by the group. And those kinds of moments are what create that kind of feeling. Can you share with our listeners a little bit about how? to maintain a balance between vulnerability and strength. Because in the times that I've been getting to know you over the past months, 
I have noticed that you have a wonderful way of demonstrating strength and also kind of holding that vulnerability as part of who you are too. And I think it's a really tough balance that as leaders, we try to strike. I'd love to hear how you do that. I would say a couple of things. I'm always clear about the goal or what we need to do. I don't waver and get wishy-washy about performance. For instance, in the position I'm in right now with City of Hope, City of Hope has extended an incredible investment into Orange County. My team and I do not have an option to not deliver on what we said we would deliver. So find me like a steel rod on that one. We must deliver. Now, how we do that is another question and being open to that, being open to different ways of doing that. And I have to honestly say it's something I always continue to try to be aware of and self-conscious of in the sense that, oh, have I pushed too far? Do I need to, to step back and give more freedom on that one? And then the other thing is to always remain calm. You know already, I'm pretty direct. You ask me a question, I'm gonna answer it right away. I'm not gonna hesitate. But I have tried to learn to discipline myself to not react so that, and almost the hotter it is, the less I react, the quieter I will become. And the more I'll sit back and watch before I do whatever I need to do. I think when leaders jump around a lot or are inconsistent, people get confused. And it's like being a ping pong ball. So steady direction and clarity and consistency are strengths. Now, there's a lot of room for warmth and fun and play in between those lines. So, you know, finding the balance and inviting people into both of those worlds is important to being successful or to projects being successful because you got to have both. You got to know how far you can color outside the lines. And when they get too far, try to use a gentle hand, not a whack upside the head, even if you want to. <laughs> um, but not waver. People appreciate more than anything. And I'm sure you're the same way, but I'm the same way with my boss. Clearly understanding the expectations. And when either they're not clear, both parties are bound to be disappointed. For not hitting the mark, well, that's not what I wanted. Or for saying, I tried really hard, but... I thought that's what you wanted. So clarity is really important. And then within that clarity, freedom to execute. And sometimes be prepared to be delighted. Sometimes be prepared to be disappointed. But it's a tough line for a leader to kind of know when to push and when to pull. It is, but I feel like what you're saying is so true, which is that if you have your due north and if it's clear what the expectations are and you trust the people that you've hired into these roles, then they can have freedom and more onus over the work that they're doing. They will bring ownership to that. They will have more purpose and they will have more fun. Because I think at the end of the day, when we co-create, it's so much more enjoyable to really show up. Absolutely. Absolutely. I am worried about looking at the workforce going forward, how maintaining that, particularly with a lot of remote. Personally, I too enjoy when I've been able to be remote on some days, cause you can like get so much done, you're not interrupted, you gain two hours from not commuting, things like that. But I know that all the evidence suggests the importance of human interactions and human feedback. And often 
it's the unofficial moments that are the memorable ones at which you've brought up before. And those are harder to create in a Zoom. So what will happen to a workforce that doesn't get enough of those moments? I think about that all the time because it's like the cooler talk. Like we used to have cooler talk, whether you had a cooler or not, there was cooler talk. Like people would talk about their weekend. You're walking to get a coffee and you see people and chime in about new sneakers that they got or whatever you notice about them. But in a Zoom, it's so hard to find things just by like looking at someone to connect with them on. It totally is. It's been a joy going back to work and like we've been touring our our new cancer centers. I've had some time just with one-on-one with some of the leaders showing me their new equipment and the little things that come out in those kind of conversations, not only about themselves, but about their work that wouldn't have been on their checklist if we were on a Zoom. We have a lot of isolation in our society already. That's not good. And this remoteness, as much as it has many benefits, create more isolation that could be detrimental both to companies as well as our society. I agree with you. And as someone who's a real people person, like I I love being with people and just doesn't even matter who it is, whether it's someone at the grocery store checking out my groceries and I'm chatting with them or, you know, it's someone like you in a conversation like this, you know, it's very energizing for me. And I feel like in some ways we have more of it with people in different like geographies through the remote, but we have less of it when it's unscripted and off agenda. And so, you know, one of the techniques I've been hearing from leaders, especially during pandemic was just toss the agenda sometimes when you have a meeting with people, because what you had on your agenda may be completely different from what they really need to be talking about. And also allows for those additional conversations around the whole person. So people can really share where they're at. I still wonder if it can ever be the same. I mean, think about, would you marry someone that you've only dated on Zoom? I've had four major employers in my career. I've been working for 40 years. So those are long stints. They weren't small. They become like family. And, you know, if I had only dated all those works by Zoom, would I have dated them for so long? It just is a question. I do not know the answer. I do not have a crystal ball on how this is going to play out. But I do know that if you lead people, we have to be watching during this time, whichever your work environment is, and be very conscious that the inclusion, the whole person, the unofficial things, you got to try every trick in the bag to make sure those things aren't lost because it's challenging for it not to happen. Absolutely. And with when you think about the workforce crisis and and all of the retention challenges we're having in nursing and beyond, but especially I think of it in nursing right now, it's well documented that you have to pay at parity for people to stay. But really what gets people like the second sort of and third items are, I feel valued. I feel that I belong here. I feel that I'm doing purpose-driven work. I matter. Like the work, the energy I'm putting out there matters to the people that I want it to. So for example, in healthcare, the patients are being impacted by me, whether I'm in HR, IT, I'm a nurse, I'm a provider, it doesn't matter. I just want to make sure that the work I'm doing is leading to that end. But you know, exactly how you're talking about the soul quenching work. That's what gets you out of bed in the morning, that what you do matters. So we're very blessed in healthcare. Like it's an amazing industry. It has so many opportunities so many job possibilities. You know, I never thought when I was in a clinical lab, I was going to grow up 
to be a president or CEO. That was not on my agenda. It's also pretty friendly to women, I think, and families. There's something innately more beneficial or sensitive to that these things are important things in life. If you could go back and share with other young aspiring leaders, like what are a couple qualities that you feel like you really need to grow up to be a leader? Like you just said, I love how you said that. I just gave a talk on this. The first one is resilience. You look at me or you look at you and someone looks you up on social media and they see, I'll use a metaphor of an iceberg. They see what's above the waterline in that iceberg. And they say, oh, look how successful Rebecca is. This she is awesome. What they don't see is all the things below the waterline, which were the work, the disappointments. Sometimes work is just work, just grind. And you just have to grind through those moments. True. No job doesn't have those moments. It just That's has true. to have enough of the other moments. But if you give up and you easily wilt to a challenge or an obstacle or even things that are bad. I mean, I had some bad things happen to me too, but if I had let them beat me and weigh me down, yeah, I use this analogy of a rock. So something shitty happens, whatever it is. <laughs> it's a rock. You, you take that rock and you have a choice. Oh, I'm going to put it in the backpack of my life and I'm going to carry it around. And then the next time a slight happens, I get another rock. Well, pretty soon all I got is a sore back. Or you look at a situation and you say, what can I learn from this? How is this going to make me better? How am I going to use it for my next opportunity? Because often our disappointments are our best opportunities. As human beings, we learn through failures and trial more than we learn through success. So resilience to me is, I think if you had to survey successful people, 99.9% of them would demonstrate themselves to be very resilient people. They don't see failure. They see what's the next thing to learn and how do I apply it? Absolutely. And it reminds me also of being an athlete where it's like you get knocked down, you get back up, you have missteps you keep going. There's going to be days when you don't perform as well as you want to, but you keep working at it. And I think the grind you're talking about is like the investment in, I know I'm going to be able to do this. I believe in myself enough to push myself through these hard days where it feels like I don't want to do it, but I show up anyway. And the showing up anyway is the hardest part. hundred percent agree with you. And I think, you know, younger people have a disadvantage right now of this illusion that Everybody else is just breezing through everything because that's the only thing they'll show that that's the only thing they're going to talk about, but it it is not how real life is. And actually you'll be better for it. There's also just periods of a career that are skill building, competency building. You're not the boss. You do have to earn your stripes. My experience as working in a clinical lab are extremely valuable to me today. And you'd say, why is that? I haven't worked in a clinical lab in 25 years, maybe. Because that experience, I saw from the ground up how a hospital works. I was part of that machine. And it wasn't part of the administrative machine. It was the machine running between departments, running between patients, really understanding how it worked. Extremely valuable today, even. When I think about decisions I make, I understand the implications of those decisions. I understand what's going to happen if this happens. So no experience is ever wasted. 
but sometimes you don't know at the time why it's going to be so valuable. So just take it and appreciate it. And if you're in the wrong place, be thoughtful about how you move to the next one, not reactionary. Love that. To kind of continue on the thoughtful note here, can you share a time, Annette, that you realized that the work that you were doing was really making the impact that you wanted it to? When I was the interim CEO of St. Joseph Health, so St. Joseph Health Time was $6 billion company, and I'd worked for him for a lot of years. And so this is the day I'm walking into the office that is the CEO office. This is the day I take position. And I drove to work like normal, like thinking, oh, it's the day, just made sure I had something nice on. And I'm walking, I'm coming up the elevator, I walk across the office, and the office was glass on three sides. And so I could see into it. And I went up to the door and I, I hesitated. And then I, I opened the door and recognition came on me that all my life or all the, you, you hear these words about, oh, the CEO's the boss, the CEO gets to decide, the CEO gets into this. And all that is true if that's what the CEO chooses to be. But it was this dawning recognition that as I stepped over that threshold, I was putting on my shoulders the weight of the history. You know, these nuns had founded this organization 100 years ago. I was responsible for their legacy. I was responsible for 25,000 people, their families who depended upon them. I was responsible for the community and all the people who needed our services. And this switches went from boss to steward, that my job was to steward this incredible gift and to make sure it screwed up <laughs> and that <laughs> people didn't suffer for bad decision-making, for bad leadership. And I can see it still today. And it was awesome, awesome course. I had my own bathroom even. It's like, it doesn't get better than that. No, that's a super fancy three-sided glass office, but still you walked in the door and you realized, wow, this is a huge responsibility and you did not take it lightly. I've never looked at leadership the same. I won't say I was far off on it, but it was a moment where it like snapped into a place of be clear on what it means to be a leader. So well said, Annette. And thank you so much for taking us on that journey. I felt like I was really with you when you walked across that threshold. That was really powerful. Now we're going to transition into our speed round of the conversation today, where I'm going to ask a couple of quick questions so that our listeners can get to know you outside the glass office. Okay. Okay. <laughs> and actually, I'm going to start by picking up on something you said earlier about your interest in musicology. And uh -huh. can you share with us how you got into music and what are you listening to? Well, the, the way I got into music, I was in a choir when I was a kid and I, I was a choir director when I was in high school. So I love music, always have. My father loved music. He was always singing. And there's something about music that's good for the soul. So what's on my, my list right now? It's all over the place. Because I grew up in the 60s, I know every Beatles song and every Beach Boy song, even though I wasn't a teenager yet. And then I do like the 80s playlists and I do like Bon Jovi. 
And my husband loves Backstreet Boys. And at every family wedding, <laughs> it's a Backstreet Boys moment. The w- entire Walker family's out there screaming the song. But I just think music is a great gift. And I wish I was more talented. If I could have been a world famous singer, that would have been a, a really great career. I didn't Ooh. have talent, but it would have been a great career. And that where can we find you on the weekends when you're not rounding in your in your organization? <laughs> My favorite thing is hiking and walking. One of my favorite life experiences is I walked the Camino in Spain. My husband and I did. And it was an amazing, amazing adventure. Going to go back and do that in a couple of years and do it again. But I love walking. I, I hate running. I hate it with a passion. You'll never find me running. But I do enjoy the cadence of walking and the things that you see and hear and just the calmness that comes after, especially walking outside. So funny because my friends used to always try to get me to go on walks with them. And I, when I was younger in high school, and I'd be like, oh no, let's just like hang out or let's take yeah. a car. It's not a big deal. And then, and then all of a sudden one day we were walking around and, and it was in the woods and my friends were like, oh, like we're on a hike. And I was like, yeah. wait, hiking is just walking in the woods. I was like, I love yeah. doing this. It's beautiful. <laughs> It's good for yourself too. Totally. That's when it dawned on me. I actually do love hiking. (laughs) Okay. And finally, Annette, last question. If we could ask you to share one lesser known fact about you, that less than 10% of your work family knows, what would that be? Actually, when I really put my mind to it, I can pretty good, but it's a very limited menu. (laughs) Okay. What's your best dish? Oh, I just mix it up all the time. When I want to make a really nice dinner, I search the internet till I find a great hors d'oeuvre, a great salad, something that my husband will eat who's very picky for the main dish, and then a great dessert. I don't have like one thing. I actually like cooking new things, and I kind of get bored with them when I do it over and over. So I really enjoy the adventure of trying something. And it's funny, I never cooked a lot over the years. My mom was a great cook and I could kick myself for not paying better attention. I was one of those brats. thought I never needed to know that. And then even when my kids were growing up, you know, we had six children and trying to always make sure we had dinner is just like a adventure in and of itself. But I never had a time to like really attend to cooking really great meals. So now that I'm a little older and there's less people to cook for at dinner, these are the things sometimes on the weekends I really like to do. I'm so glad you shared that. And I feel like we might need a follow-up show about how to have a working mama who's so busy prepare six children's dinners. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, there, there could be a whole show on that, but I'll just give one little hint for working mothers. Making your children clean their own rooms and make their beds is not child abuse. It's really good for your kids. So you know, regardless of what they say, and if they call you the meanest mom in the world, say, thank you. It's a badge of honor. You're forming people for the future. Find your sweet spot and build for the future. I'm Rebecca Corin. Thanks for listening to Moments Move Us. Remember, when you put people first, your actions can move others in unexpected ways. Be sure to follow wherever you get your audio.